Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3 this morning. And while you're turning, I want to ask our sound people in the back, if you could put the words of In Christ Alone back up. Put those words back up for us uh, while you're turning to, to John chapter 3. I hope that you had a, uh, have had a, a great Christmas. And uh, if you're like me, you probably ate a, a lot of food and a lot of goodies and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I'm afraid that we might have eaten so much and, and, and everything that we might be a little tired this morning. And so I want us to make sure that we are we're awake as we come to God's Word. Because we have just sung some songs that just point us directly to Christ. For the past several weeks, that all we've been looking to is the coming of Christ. And we've been thinking about that. We've been talking about it. We've been celebrating it. And we had a fantastic worship Thursday evening uh, for our Christmas Eve service, just centered upon Christ. It was a beautiful time of worship. So I want us to think about these words. We're not just looking at the coming of Christ, but now we're moving beyond that. What has Christ come for? What has he done? So let's go to, go to the second verse with this uh, as we think, of, think about this. And Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God, go on to the next one. So on that cross, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. Did you all think about that while you were singing that song? The wrath of God was satisfied when Jesus died on the cross. This major scene that we've been looking forward to over the past several weeks and that we celebrated Thursday night, this is what it was all culminating in. Jesus coming to satisfy the wrath of God. Go on to verse 3. Skip on a couple slides to, to verse 3. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again. How can we sing that without deep joy in our hearts for what he has done? This baby that we have remembered over the past few weeks, this is what we're celebrating. Y'all can go ahead and, and pull that down. The... Um, we're moving into, now Christmas is, is past, we're moving into a new year and, and everything. And, and what I want us to do this morning, I want us to think for just a little while on what Christ has accomplished. We've talked about his coming and looked forward to that, but now I want us to set our hearts and our minds on what Christ accomplished by his coming. You see, we're getting ready to go into, back to uh, students, you're getting ready to go back to school and, and homework here in about a week. And uh, those of you all who had a few days off from work, you're getting ready to go back to the grind and all the work that's waiting on you and everything that you have to do and things like that. And it's very easy for us to have had this, this great few weeks of worship and, and Christ-centered everything. And for us to go back just to the daily grind and just kind of, all that just kind of slip away. And just for the daily stuff that we have to go through just to begin to kind of take over our lives. And just kind of get back in the routine of, of kids and homework and school and, and job and everything else that's going on and that stuff begins to just kind of creep in and take over. That's so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to focus our thoughts, our minds upon what Christ has accomplished. As we look to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is a chapter that, uh, that you remember probably very well. It's a chapter in which Nicodemus comes to to visit Jesus at night one night. And Nicodemus was a, a man who is a Pharisee. And if you remember from, uh, from studying Scripture before, you remember that Pharisees were a group of Jews who were very zealous for the law. What they did was they worked to, to try and keep the law in every single facet of the law. And they even made up extra laws 
to, uh, to make sure that they didn't possibly break one of God's laws. And so they were very zealous for this. And Nicodemus is one of those Pharisees. And he's coming to talk to Jesus because he has heard something about Jesus. He's heard about some of these amazing things that Jesus has been doing. And he's heard about Jesus being this, this amazing teacher. And so now he's wanting to find out more, who is this Jesus? What Nicodemus doesn't realize is that, Nick, that Jesus is getting ready to, to rock his world. Jesus is getting ready to turn everything upside down that Nicodemus has believed about how he can see the kingdom by obeying the law and by being good in, in himself and what he does. Jesus is getting ready to totally turn all that upside down. And so this morning as we look at this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to, to focus on this and think about what does Scripture say, what does Jesus say about how a person is saved. And now I know this concept and this passage is something that's very familiar to you. you. You've read it many times before. You've studied it in Sunday school since you were a kid. And here's what, I, what is a danger for us when we come to a passage like this. When we come to a passage that's real familiar, it's easy for us just to tune it out. It's easy for us to say, well, I've heard that before. I, I know exactly what that's talking about and just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. Don't do that this morning. Listen to what God's Word says and focus in on it. Hear what Christ is saying to us. We've had such an intense time of worship over these past few weeks, Christ-centered worship. What I don't want to have happen is for us to go back into our daily routines and all that to slip away. Each and every one of us have so many things pulling at us. You have so many things that are going on in your life that are screaming for your attention. Screaming that it needs your, your focus and that everything in this world is pulling at you. And you can think about the thousand things that you have going on in your life right now that are going to be coming up over these next few weeks and how just so easy it's going to be for you just to slip into the routine of the world pulling at your heart and pulling at your mind. And so before long, it doesn't take long for our hearts and our minds just to be wrapped around the stuff that we have going on in this world. And for the cross to become a little more distant and a little more distant and have less of a center hold in our life. The world's constantly pulling at us, screaming at us to make the world the center of our lives. The remedy for that is to set our hearts and our minds upon God. And one way to help us do that is for us to go back and think about what is it that Christ has accomplished in our lives. And so this morning, I want us to focus in on what Christ has accomplished in our lives if we are believers, so that when we go back to school, students, when you go back to school, when you go back to college, or when you go back to work, or as you're dealing with kids at home, stay-at-home moms, that you don't get just wrapped up in the stuff that's going on in the world and let things, let the things of God slide to the to the side, but that our passions will grow inflamed for God. And as we study and think about what He has done, our hearts will grow in passion and zeal for Him, and He'll become the focus of our hearts and minds. And so that's what I want us to do this morning as we set about thinking about what has Jesus said here. As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things that Jesus said are required of salvation. The first thing we're going to notice is that salvation requires being born again. Start at verse 1 there in, in chapter 3, and let's listen to, to what is uh, occurring in this passage. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, 
a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here Nicodemus is, he's, he's heard about Jesus, he's seen some things about Jesus, and Nicodemus gets a little bit of it right. He partially is understanding here, because Nicodemus says, well, you must be a, a man of God, that you must be a, a godly teacher of some way, because we're seeing the kind of things that you're, de- that you're doing. So Nicodemus, he gets it a little bit right. He says, you're, you're from God, so he's kind of getting that, but he really doesn't have any idea of the real nature of who Jesus is. He's not fully getting it. He's not understanding that he really is the, the son of God. He thinks he's just a, a good teacher from God. And now what we have next is just kind of Jesus just laying it out for him. It, it's as if Jesus looks at him and, and says, all right, you think you know me? You think that I'm a, I'm a good teacher and I, I come from God? You, you got it a little bit right, but let me tell you what, I know you. I know who you are. I know that you're a Pharisee and I know that you're trying to be able to see the kingdom of God and achieve your salvation by the good things that you do. So you come to me and you don't know exactly who I am, but I know exactly who you are. And I know what you're trying to do and how you're trying to obey the law and see the kingdom by that way. But let me tell you what, Nicodemus, that's not going to work. You must be born again if you're going to see the kingdom of God. There's no other way. Now this seems almost kind of a little bit harsh, Jesus saying this. Because here Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Jesus knows that he's a Pharisee. Jesus knows that Nicodemus is trying to obey the law and that he's trying to see his salvation by obeying the law. And here Jesus is, lays out and says, hey, hey you're only going to see the kingdom if you're born again. And it's kind of this, this strange, mysterious, enigmatic saying that Jesus makes. Are you going to be born again? And Nicodemus is like, what? What am I supposed to do? I've got to be born again. Here I'm trying to obey the law. And you're saying, hey, I've got to be born again. But Jesus just lays it out to him. No, you've got to be born again. Your way of following the law just isn't going to work. This, is, this really isn't that unusual for Jesus, just to kind of lay things out and just to, to not really soften the truth of what he's saying. Think about some of the times where people came up to Jesus and some of the things that he said to him. Think about when some Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, Oh, who is my neighbor? And Jesus lays it out to him. You say, You know that uh, you, know, you hate the Samaritans? You know that they're kind of your sworn enemy? Well, let me tell you what. Here's an example of a good Samaritan. Now, you go love somebody the way that Samaritan did, the way your sworn enemy did. Somebody comes up to him one day and says, Hey, I, I want to follow you, Jesus. Well, Jesus said, Well, let me tell you what you got to do. Why don't you go sell everything you have and give it to the poor? Somebody else comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, I, I, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, Hey, let me tell you what. Here's what you got to do. Following me may mean that you don't have a place to lay your head. Birds of the air have their their nests they go to, the foxes have the dens they go to, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, hey, that may be what it means for you to follow me. Jesus lays it pretty much out there for people, and we're not talking about people who are already disciples. We're talking about people who just come up to him and want to learn more about who he is, and Jesus lays it out and says, here it is, bam! Now follow me. One thing that we don't see happening is Jesus trying to woo people into the kingdom. This is a little bit of a side here, but I want us to focus on this and think about this just a second. We don't see Jesus going up to people and saying, hey, you can have a better life if you'll follow me. Hey, if you'll follow me, you'll have a better marriage. 
and you'll have kids that obey you and they won't scream and cry anymore and you'll have you'll have the coolest clothes and you'll have the uh, you know the best chariot to ride around in or whatever he doesn't we don't see Jesus going around talking to people like that he doesn't say hey you're gonna get the best stuff if you follow me Jesus lays it out pretty bluntly to people somebody comes up to him and says hey I want to follow you but I need to go bury my father and Jesus said hey let the dead bury the dead you come follow me recognize the son of man is here standing for you God himself hey you want to come follow me just come follow me he doesn't really pull any punches he says you want to come follow me hey eat my flesh drink my blood that's what it's going to take to be a follower of me I think sometimes that we've missed that in the church today I think the church in America a lot of times we have They've traded this kind of urgency that Jesus has and this kind of straightforward, hey, this is what it means to follow me for a watered-down, lack-of-urgency, feel-good kind of message where people are told, hey, if you come to Jesus, you'll get your better life. Just come to Jesus and you'll have a better job. Just come to Jesus and he'll wipe away all your worries and your cares and everything will be good for you. Hey, come to Jesus, you'll get a bigger house. You know, just these, you know, one thing after another, that stuff that, that is kind of peddled to people. It's almost like, a, you know, being a car salesman. You know, you want a car? Here's one that gets better gas mileage. Look, at, you want to follow somebody? Follow Jesus. You'll get kind of a better life to it. Well, here's the problem with that kind of picture. We don't follow God. We don't come to God to get a better life. We don't come to God to get a better marriage. We don't come to God to get better kids. We don't come to God to get more stuff. We come to God to get God. You know, when we come to him, when God did a work in my life and brought me to salvation, I didn't get better life, better this, newer, faster car, or anything like that. You know what I got? I got God. And that's what you and I get when we come to salvation. And so we don't take the gospel to people peddling it like they'll get something else. They get what is the best thing that there is, and that is God himself. You know, when I go stand before God in heaven, I'm not going to look back and say, well, thank goodness I had a better car or a better, you know, marriage or I had a better kids that, you know, obeyed me better. You know what I'm going to do when I stand there before God in eternity for all time, standing for Him? I stand before the one that I got. I got God. I got a relationship with Him, and that is the goal of the gospel. Jesus is standing here talking to Nicodemus saying, hey, you're going to get your best life if you'll follow me now. No, if you follow me, this is what you get. You get truly, truly, I stand before you, the Son of Man. This is what you get. So if you are a believer, that, that is the goal of the gospel. We get God for eternity. Isn't that amazing? We get God, and here Nicodemus is man that believes that he's earns his salvation by following the, the law and earning it and he's heard about some of these good things that Jesus has done and it says if Jesus is saying to him you're, you're interested in the signs the stuff that I've done you don't understand you don't get it you're you're excited about all this temporal stuff that I'm doing but here it is I am God right before you here's what you get if you come to me. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. You remember Jesus saying that? That's his purpose of coming. Being a, a Pharisee or a Jew or whatever else won't save you. It's about being born again. The point that Jesus is making here is that you can't bring about your salvation by your own efforts. Exactly what the Pharisees, these other people, were trying to do. And we stand back 2,000 years later in our, 
in our, our comfortable pews here and, and looking back on Nicodemus and we think, well, how in the world, Nicodemus, could you really believe that you're going to get to see the kingdom, that you're going to get salvation by being good? We kind of get a little bit judgmental on him, thinking, oh, how in the world could you think that? But here's the thing. That's probably the exact thing that the majority of people in the world believe today that they will see heaven, that they'll see salvation by basically being good. Students, the, the people that you walk by in school, the students that you go to school with, I can guarantee you that a lot of those think, hey, God's going to accept me because I'm not as bad as some of those other people. I'm basically a good person. You know, your neighbors, the folks you work with, even probably some of your family, probably looking at their lives and saying, hey, you know, I'm not as bad as these other folks. God's going to accept me because I've done a lot more good in my life than I have done bad. That's the predominant view in our world today. And so this, as we're talking about Nicodemus here, we've got Nicodemuses running around all around us. They may not be trying to follow a whole specific set of laws, but they're relying on their own goodness for salvation rather than relying on the only one who can save them. Look what Jesus says, verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the only way. You must be born again. Now, the way this is written in the Greek doesn't right fully get across in, in, in the English. And so we're going to have a little bit of an English lesson here in case it's been a few years since you've been in school and been focusing on your grammar and everything. I, I kind of like grammar and all that kind of stuff. So here's your, your grammar lesson for the day. Does anybody remember what a passive verb is? Passive? Oh, here's your, all right, here comes the grammar lesson. All right, passive verbs. Passive verbs are those verbs that mean uh, something is done to you. Or like an active verb is I do something. Like you imagine you're playing baseball, I, I hit the ball. I'm doing that. I'm hitting it. Now, a passive verb means something's being done to me. I get hit by the ball. You know, you see the difference there? Something's done to me. All right, when Jesus is talking here, he's using passive verbs. It's something that's done to you, not something you do yourself. It's something done to you. Jesus said that you must be born again, passive. It's something that's done to you by God. Nicodemus, it's not up to you. You can't do it yourself. It's something that God does to you. You must be born again. Now, we're in a time here in our church where there's a lot of ideas about birthing going on. We got babies being born left and right. You know, you look in our nursery and it's overflowing. You're going to have to hang them from the ceiling or something. I don't know. We've got tons of babies. We had one born a few days ago. Now, if you think about birthing, about these babies, there is no baby that says, I think I'm going to be conceived today. The baby doesn't do it. The baby doesn't birth itself. There's a mama who's involved in that process, just in case you didn't know. <clears throat> Jesus is saying here, hey, look, you must be born again, and hey, it's not going to happen just by you. It's something that's passive. It's something that's done by God. So if you're going to see, enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Something that is done by God to you. Poor Nicodemus. Poor Nicodemus. Here he is. He just wanted to come find out who Jesus is. And Jesus said, hey, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. So we get the first thing that Jesus says. He says, you must be born again. Now we come to the second thing Jesus is going to say, and he says that salvation requires being born of the Spirit. 
Look at verse 4. We'll follow along how Nicodemus' head is just exploding at this point. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Obviously, Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. I don't know. We don't know how much he doesn't get it. We don't know if he's actually thinking, You expect me to go back into my mother's womb? Are you crazy? We don't know if maybe he's just kind of trying to wrap his mind around it and saying, You know, Jesus... I hear what you're saying. I, I know you don't actually mean that. What is it you're trying to get across? So what we know is Nicodemus doesn't really get it. He doesn't know what's going on. And look what Jesus says next to him. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless is one, one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now this is something that gives people fits sometimes. They look at this and say, and Jesus is saying, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit cannot enter the end of the kingdom of God, and they automatically think what? Baptism. So you're telling me here that Jesus says that I have to be baptized in order to be saved, in order to go to the kingdom? Now, doesn't that sound like, I'm, like that's like a work of me? That's like I'm relying on my good things to do. So what is, what is Jesus talking about here? Is he saying you've got to be baptized in order to go to heaven? No, I don't think so. Jesus is saying something that Nicodemus really would have caught on to quickly. Remember, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's like an expert in the law. He knew the Old Testament forward and backward. Probably quote tons of it. He's, he's like the teacher that you go to when you want to learn something about the Old Testament. And so Nicodemus here would have immediately caught on to what Jesus was doing because Nick, uh, Jesus was referring back to an Old Testament passage. So if you want to go back, turn back with me to Ezekiel 36. It's an idea that we see in the Old Testament a few times about how God relates water and purification. How God relates water and being cleaned by him. Ezekiel 36, listen to this in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, which I prove myself holy among the, you in your sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own lands. God is saying here, you have profaned my name, you have bowed down to false idols, you are dirty in my sight. Now listen to what I'm going to do. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from, your all, from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now, does that not sound like salvation? I will put my spirit in you. I will clean you. You notice how water there is related to purification, related to salvation? Jesus is doing that exactly right here in this, in this passage in John 3. Go ahead and turn back there. Jesus is saying, look, you don't need to follow all the laws. You don't understand. You're dirty. You're a sinner. You're dead in your sins. What you need is for me to cleanse you. And that's not something that you can do on your own. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed as I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus is pointing out here, you can't do it on your own. That which is born of flesh is flesh. 
you're dead in your trespass sin. There's nothing that a dead person can do to make himself alive again. That which is flesh is flesh. You know, think about a cow. A cow's never going to give birth to a duck because a cow's a cow. A duck's a duck. Not going to happen, you know? The point here is that Jesus is saying, hey, something, somebody who's dead in their sins isn't going to make themselves alive spiritually. Think back to Lazarus. Remember what happened in the tomb with Lazarus. Lazarus has been laying there three days, dead. His sister said, don't go in there, he's stinking. What hope did Lazarus have of raising himself out of the tomb? Nothing. There was nothing that he could do. What can a dead man do other than just continue to remain there in the tomb? And so Jesus calls out to him, the one who is the son of God, and what does Lazarus do? He obediently walks out of the tomb. It wasn't Lazarus doing it himself. It was God himself raising him out of the tomb. And so think about this. Here's Nicodemus thinking, trusting all his life in his own goodness, his own merit, and what he can do. And Jesus is turning this upside down and saying, look, flesh cannot give life to flesh. It's got to happen by God. Listen to what he says in verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not where it, know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying here that you want to be born again? I'm telling you what salvation is and how you can be entering into the kingdom of God. It can only come through the Spirit of God working within you. No other way that it is possible. Now think about the wind again. Can you control the wind? Can you tell it where to go or where it's going to blow? No. The wind blows where it wants to go. The wind works according to how it wants to work. Think back to what we said about passive verbs. All right, this is related to that. Passive verbs means what? Are you doing the action or is the action being done to you? All right, let's, let's, let's remember our grammar lessons. Are you doing the action or is the action being done to you? Being done to you. There we go. Our, got it. Jerry's our English scholar right there. <coughs> the action is being done to us. Now think again here. We're talking about the Spirit, the Spirit blowing. Is, it, are we controlling the Spirit? Or is the Spirit coming and working in us by God's sovereign choice? It's the Spirit working and moving within us. This is something that, that we see over and over again in the book of John. John talks about how you cannot do anything to save yourself. John 1.13 says, We become children of God, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God working in us and through us to make us his own. It's not us working up some feelings. It's not us uh, going before a, a church and, and making a decision. It's not us walking an aisle. It's not us getting baptized. It's not any of these things. It's the Holy Spirit moving into our lives and then making us born again. This is something that is known in theology as the doctrine of regeneration being born again, made alive again. It's us being taken by God, dead in our trespasses and sin, and being raised to newness of life in which God does the work in us. What an amazing picture of us who had no hope, dead in our trespasses and sin, and yet God raises us by His Spirit. Do you see the power of God and God Himself at work in us? And that is not us. But a lot of times, when we, when we hear about people who were born again, we hear some statistics that are pretty discouraging. 
Barna is a guy who does a lot of uh, a lot of studies on people who claim to be born again in, in America. And one thing that he finds is that those who claim to be born again by God essentially look no different than the world around them. He'll look at the, the statistics, and those who claim to be born again will essentially spend their money in the exact same way, look at the exact same things on TV, watch the same movies, uh, have the, basically the same outlook on life. They just call themselves born again. Now, what's the problem here? Is it possible to be born again, raised into newness of life by God himself, and yet look exactly like the rest of the world? Barnett's criteria for what he's using here is that he says a person is born again if they believe in Jesus and made a personal commitment to him. The problem is that we have a lot of people in, in the church today, in America today, who claim to be born again because they like Jesus, but in truth the Spirit has never made them new creatures. Think about what happens when something is made new. Paul talks about that if we're saved, then we have been made into a new creature. We're a new creation. Think about a baby. A baby is born. It doesn't continue just to remain there in the womb. It doesn't continue just to, to abide there. It goes out, and, and it breathes, and it functions, and it cries, and it eats, and it sleeps, and it poops, and all that stuff that a baby does. It lives. It doesn't show the characteristics of something that is dead. The question that we need to ask ourselves have we been born again? This is the question that I want every person in here to ask themselves. Child, student, adult, whatever. Ask yourself the question, have I been born again? Has there been a time where, in my life where God has worked in me so I went from the point of being dead to the point of being alive? Has that happened in my life? So that you can look at your life and you can say, yes, I see where the Spirit made me alive and I am different because I am alive, not dead. So if we have salvation, we must be born again. We must be born of the Spirit. And then finally, Jesus tells us that salvation requires belief in Christ. And this is where we go to in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Nicodemus is trying to follow along, and Jesus is throwing some radically different ideas out at him, and Nicodemus is struggling to understand this. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am speaking the truth to you. So Nicodemus, you don't understand, but recognize who is in front of you, Jesus, the Son of Man. I have come down from heaven. And so Jesus begins to use an Old Testament passage to explain this to Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus... Old Testament scholar. He was an expert. He would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus talks about a passage that's kind of a little strange to us. Listen to this, starting in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus is referring back to a passage uh, in the book of Numbers, from Numbers 21. Remember, 
from this passage, if you remember this, the people of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness. They had sinned against God, and, and God had set them wandering around the wilderness. And here they were, and they are grumbling, and they are griping, and they are complaining to God about the fact that they are there in the wilderness, and all they have is this manna stuff to eat. And it's manna today, and manna for lunch, and manna for supper, and they're griping and griping and griping and griping about this. And God looks at them and says, fine. Let me tell you what, tell you what I'm going to do. I'll just send out a bunch of snakes to bite you. And God sends snakes out to bite the people of Israel. And people are dying left and right. And they say, well, maybe we shouldn't have been griping and complaining to God. So they begin to repent of what they've been saying and the things that they've been doing. And they turn to God and say, God, will you save us? Will you heal us? And Moses is praying out to God for healing. And this is what God says to do. God tells Moses, Moses, here's what you do. I want you to take and make a, a snake out of bronze. And you put that snake up on a pole and if the people will just look at that snake up on a pole then they're going to be healed now that seems like a strange thing for God to tell them to do and we're talking about the God of all creation here the God who spoke everything into existence the God who could if he just snapped his fingers he could just say all right be healed you know he could this is the God who could if he wanted to make legs pop out of the snakes and have them dance across and around the the room for him you know he could do anything but God tells them to put this snake up on the pole. What is God doing there? God's saying, look, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself in this. Can't trust in your own medicine. Can't trust in your own ability. I want to teach you to trust in me and me alone. So he puts that, Moses puts that snake up in there and all who trust that they will be healed. Look at that snake, and they're healed. So why is Jesus telling that story to Nicodemus? Well, Jesus is setting up a comparison. He's saying, all right, Nicodemus, here's what you need to understand. The people during that time, they were dying. What you need to understand is that people like you are dying also. The people around Moses had no hope. There was nothing that they could do in and of themselves. Nicodemus, what you need to understand is that you and no one else can do anything of themselves. And there is nothing that you can do. But here's what can be, what can be done. If you will raise up that snake, and let me tell you, the Son of Man is going to be raised up. And if you will trust in the Son of Man when He is raised up on that cross, then you will be saved. Just like those people in the Old Testament were healed, then you also will be healed. You will be saved. And that same analogy is true for us today. People around us dying in their sins. No hope in and of themselves. Nothing that they can do. But Christ has been raised up so that those who look upon him for salvation will have salvation. The point here is that if you trust, trust in Christ. That word believe, we, a lot of times we think about it just mental assent. Just we believe the truth that Jesus is God's son. It's not just mental belief. But it is trust. It is acceptance. It is placing your whole life's trust in that knowledge that Jesus has taken the punishment for our sins. So when the Holy Spirit is drawing a person, when the Holy Spirit is working in the heart of a person, regenerating, what's our response? To believe, to trust in Christ. This, what we've been talking about, this is the essence of salvation. 
This is the essence of what Christ has done. We've been talking about the manger for so long. I want us to remember that this is what Christ has accomplished in our lives. And it's not about us. It's not about what we've done, but it's about what Christ has done in us. So my question that I ask you is, are you born again? Have you been made new by God, by the Spirit working in you? If you have, make it your point this week, and as you go back into the daily routine of life, to set your heart upon Him. Don't fall into the trap and the temptation that the world just consumes everything in your life when you have you know, this responsibility here, this responsibility here, things that have to be done, the house got to be clean, all this other stuff. Don't let that stuff invade your heart and your mind so that that rules your life. Set your heart and your mind on the one who has saved you by His work. If you haven't been born again, do what Jesus says. He says, trust in Him. Now in a room this size, I, I would dare say there are probably some in here who have never been born again. If that is you, it, it doesn't mean you coming up here and talking to me or to, to someone else or to, to filling out a card or to, to being baptized. It is about you sensing the Holy Spirit working in you, making you new, and you calling out to God and saying, I trust you. I believe in you. I repent and turn of my sins, and I trust that you took the punishment for me. So, so if that is you, call on his name for salvation. If it's not you, just rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in what he has done in you. Let's pray. God, we come before you rejoicing in the good work that you have done. And we recognize that it is not us, but that you have come and worked in us by your great goodness, by the Holy Spirit. God, if there's anyone in here who does not know you, God, I pray that you'll stir in them with your spirit and they will turn to you and trust in you. For those of the rest of us who know you, God, help us just to not be consumed with this world, but to turn to you and set our hearts and our minds upon you that we may worship and glorify you and not be consumed by the stuff that we have going on day to day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.